0: Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, thank you for the gospel of John. Uh, just, uh, I know my own study time has just been rich, and I pray that that would be the case for each one here today, Lord, that as we uh, settle our hearts before you and we focus on what your word has to say to us and, and uh, the things in our lives you want to address, I pray that you would find people whose hearts are yielded to you, to your Holy Spirit. So we thank you. We pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would come dwell among us, work in us, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 7. We're going to move forward about six months in time from John chapter 6 where we ended with Jesus telling the people, you have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want anything to do with me. And the people left. Remember last week we talked about he started out with 5,000 men and ended up with 11. And then some stragglers. Uh, Not exactly what we would look at as a successful evangelistic outreach, but it was very successful in Jesus' eyes because he thinned the ranks on purpose, which he often does because it was more important to him to have people that have a right understanding of who he is than for people to have this shallow understanding that he was just there to give them stuff. Uh, Giving him stuff was to identify him as Messiah for them to be able to elevate their thinking of him and to see that he truly has the ability to forgive sin. So we looked at all of that and then he he turns to his guys and he says, well, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And uh, Peter has those famous words, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the Son of the living God and, and uh, his men hanging with him. And, so, uh, and then he talked about Judas there at the end of chapter six, where he says, uh, You know, one of you, I've, I, I chose all of you guys, and one of you is the devil. And we, we looked at that. We looked at the sovereignty of God and how God, in his sovereignty, sets these things up, he puts these things in motion and that through that we can be encouraged because sometimes things are falling apart in our lives and yet we know that he has this we know that he has every detail of our lives in his hands and what a great encouragement that is for us when we're going through the fires again he he tells them i chose you guys and nobody is going to get out of my hand uh, and i He talks about that through chapter 6, indicating that he knew these people were going to leave, but he already knew who was going to believe in him and who wasn't. And so again, the sovereignty of God coming into play there in chapter 6 in a beautiful way. And at that point, because of what happened in chapter five, remember he healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda and and he he healed the guy on the Sabbath, number one, told him number two to pick up his pallet and uh, actually do work. And the the Jews were scandalized. The religious leaders were, and they were looking for something to pin on him. They were looking for reasons not to believe. And they were under conviction. Believe me, they had to be under conviction for who he truly was. And yet, uh, because of that, they hatched a plot to kill him. And things were heating up, in, especially in Judea. He, he spent the last six months in Galilee, in the Galilee region, in the northern part of the country, because things were heating up in, in Judea and in Jerusalem. The religious leaders were out to get him, and he knew it. So that's the background that we enter chapter 7 with. And uh, he's no longer in a place where he's going to wait. And we see some really interesting interaction with him and his brothers, his half-brothers, same mom. Of course, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and they were conceived of Joseph. So, uh, but these are guys that he grew up with, and there would have been a lot of familiarity with him. I think it's very interesting. We'll see some things about them as we get into the dialogue with them this morning. Verse 1 in chapter 7, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Uh, again, the reason they sought to kill him is because he healed the guy on the Sabbath, and then he told them to pick up his pallet and walk. Uh, after these things, it, again, after everyone left, it, he stayed in Galilee, which I think is interesting, you know, because chapter six closes on a, on a kind of a downward note where he's there with just a small group of people, but he stayed in Galilee for the next six months, and he stayed available to the people, and I would imagine that through that six months, John doesn't record this. As a matter of fact, a great deal of the gospel of John is the last 24 hours of, of Jesus's earthly ministry and his life here prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection. So John's not so interested in giving us a detailed account of this entire three and a half year period. We've been skipping along here. Now we've covered about almost three years by the time we get to this point here. So he's not looking at the chronology as much as he is what he states in chapter 20, where he says that the reason I'm writing these things is that people will come to believe. This is a very evangelistic uh, writing. This gospel has a very strong evangelistic slant. That's why we see the word believe, 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 believe in it. Uh, Again, the verb believe, an active belief, an active faith to come to faith, to come to trust in him. So, uh, in verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Uh, again, Passover, if you look back in John 6, 4, it says it was the time of the Passover when he, uh, the crowds were coming. They were starting to travel down to the southern part when he was there at Mount Arbel, and he fed the 5,000 men and the 15,000 or so people by the time you add women and children. And so... That was in chapter 6. Now we're at the Feast of Tabernacle, Tabernacles. That would happen in late April, early May. Uh, it was uh, I'm sorry, the, the Feast of Passover would be late April, early May. This would be late September, early October for the Feast of Tabernacles because it was a celebration of the harvest. Uh, it was also called the Feast of Booths and in, in the Feast of the Ingathering. Uh, and it was the third of the great annual feasts of the Jews. Uh, it was set forth in Leviticus, back during the wilderness wanderings of the people, the the, the Jewish people, the Israelites in the, the wilderness there when they spent that 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. And that's what the tabernacles were about. It was also, as I said, the Feast of Booths. Now, what they would do is the people would literally, they would move out of their house. It was an eight-day feast, Right. And they'd move out of their house, and they'd build these little lean to huts. And then they would go, and they would move into these little temporary dwellings, these booths, uh, and they would spend the week out there, uh, and it... I could picture them laying down at night and staring up at the stars with their kids laying next to them and then telling the stories about uh, commemorating when the people were wandering in the wilderness for that time and God's faithfulness through it. And so this was probably the greatest. Now now Passover was the greatest of the feasts as far as spiritual significance goes we know that we know that Jesus was pointed to from the very first Passover and we see that he's the fulfillment of the Passover being crucified on Passover and yet this was the greatest feast as far as holidays go in the Jewish calendar because it was sort of like thanksgiving is for us it's and thanksgiving kind of sprung out of that our modern thanksgiving and that's a whole different deal but the point is that the Feast of Tabernacles, these people would go and they would spend this time, the time in their booths. It, it was also called the Feast of the end Gathering. They'd celebrate the end of harvest and a successful harvest they would hope for. And, and uh, it was just a party. The people would go down to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And the hillsides around Jerusalem would have been littered with these little booths all over the place. Uh, it was one of the three mandatory feasts in the Jewish calendar. Uh, they were required to go to three throughout the year. So a little background on that. Um, The feast was designed to be a memorial of the wilderness wanderings when the people dwelt in the booths, and it was also the uh, Harvest Thanksgiving uh, and then the Jews added a couple of things later on, and by Jesus' time, these things had been added. And that was, they, the first was that they drew water from the Pool of Siloam, which is, if you look at where the Temple Mount is, and you go down the hill, down the Kidron Valley, been to the Pool of Siloam a couple times, and, and it's just been excavated in the last, I don't know, couple of decades, I don't remember exactly, uh, but very recently been excavated. When they can only, they've only been able to excavate part of it because I think it's the Greek Orthodox Church owns the vacant lot next to the pool, and they will not let anybody touch that. And so it's like you got this pool, you got steps, and then a little bit of pool, and then dirt. It's an offense, <laughs> because they, they're like, nope, we're not going to. And so they won't let them do that. But the priests would go down from the Temple Mount with pitchers, and we'll look at that next week, because we're going to look at the great day of the feast next week. When the priests would go down, they would have this solemn procession that they'd go down and they'd fill these pitchers at the pool of Siloam, and they would come up and they would dump the pitchers of water at the altar in the temple proper. Uh, interesting thing about that, we'll get into the details on that next week. Um, I've walked that walk, and it's steep, it's a steep hill. Uh, and how they walked up the hill with these pitchers of water and didn't break a sweat because they weren't allowed to break a sweat. I have no idea. I'd be hoping it was a cloudy day because they did it. And at that point, it was at that point during the middle of this very silent processional that Jesus cried out. And we'll get into that next week. So... Stick around for that next week. But uh, anyway, they added this thing where they would do the pictures of water. The other thing they added, they they would light lamps at night. And it was to commemorate um, the pillar of fire back again during the wilderness wanderings. And so uh, they had customs that they developed around this, that by the time Jesus' day came, this whole thing had been fully developed. Um, roofs, courtyards, streets, squares, roads, and gardens were green with boughs of citron and myrtle, palm and willow, and the booths recalled the pilgrimage through the wilderness. So verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for even his brothers did not believe in him. That's an interesting passage, guys. All right, they're giving God advice. Um, Yeah, I don't really need to comment on that. But they're giving Jesus advice. And essentially, they're giving him very worldly advice. They're saying, you know, you're sticking around up here in the Galilee. This isn't where things are happening. The happening place, Jesus, you want to become well-known, you're doing all this stuff. And they were seeing the miracles he was doing. They Again, they were part of the crowd that was not connecting the miracles to who he was. They were falling short, just like the people. We've talked about that at length. And yet, Jesus's brothers... Don't believe in him. And they're saying, you've got to head up. Hey, man, you need to go to the big city and take that show on the road, essentially, is what they're doing. They're, they're trying to tell him that he needs to take this miracle-working show that he's got and get down to Jerusalem. And I just think it's fascinating. I mean, I'm the youngest of four brothers. I grew up with some really interesting habits. Brothers can be pretty rough. I still, my wife will bust me sometimes. I'll be eating dinner. I'm left-handed. I'll be eating. I'll have my fork in my left hand and I'll have my arm around my plate. And she's like, honey, it's okay. Oh, oh, sorry. Because my food got ripped off way more than I got to eat it all by my older brothers. And, you know, I think about that. The interaction that Jesus would, how would you like to have Jesus for your older brother? He never did anything wrong. He never he never jacked you up. He never, you know, took a swipe at you as you're walking along. I mean, all of those things that brothers do, interesting, interesting here. These guys are showing him kind of a sarcastic contempt. You know, familiarity, the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, right? That's what these guys are doing. They're being sort of contemptuous with him, kind of cranky kind of trying to egg him on, trying to sort of manipulate him. You know, Jesus, you want, it, you want this thing to go well? You better head down to Jerusalem. Come on. You know, and, and, and we marvel. This is free. At times, when that person that we know so well, that family member that perhaps we have shared Christ with at least a dozen times, that person that we've prayed for perhaps for decades, that they still say, no, no thanks, I'm good. I don't really want to hear about this Jesus guy. These are his own brothers, and they had not come to faith. They did not believe. Uh, Yes, at least two of them would. We know that because two of them have books in the New Testament. James, the book of James is Jesus' brother, Uh, And he became one of the the main ruling elders in Jerusalem. And he was a very prominent man in the early church, mightily used of God. Uh, His book, his writing is to the Jews of the dispersion. They had been spread out over the empire. And and he had a ministry to the Messianic Christians of his day. The other one is Jude. Uh, That one chapter, that one page book towards the end of the New Testament, powerful powerful book. So we know that at least James and Jude came to faith, true faith in Christ, but it wasn't until after he'd been crucified and resurrected that they came to believe. And that's what the Bible tells us. And so Jesus says to them, he says, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Interesting, it, remember when we were studying in chapter three and Jesus is with Nicodemus, in verse 19, he, you know, we look at verse 16 of chapter three, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life, right? The most quoted verse arguably in the whole Bible. And he goes on to say that he didn't come to condemn the world, the, con- the world is already condemned and he says in verse 19, talking to Nicodemus, this is the condemnation, That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so Jesus here in chapter 7, going out three years, because this is very early in his ministry, going out three years or so from the time he was talking to Nicodemus is saying, you know, that thing that I was telling Nicodemus back there, that's really true. I've testified to the world that its deeds are evil and they don't like it. In other words, what he's telling his his brothers is, look, the world is not a dangerous place for you. And, And really, I mean, think about it, guys, people that are in the world, that are part of the world, that have never come to faith in Christ, that have never professed him as Lord, the world's not a dangerous place. It's embracing to you. Well, it's an illusion and it won't last, but... He's telling these guys, look, it's not a dangerous thing for you to go to Jerusalem. Your time is always opportune, but my time isn't fully come yet because the world is a very dangerous place for me because the Jews are trying to kill me. And and so interesting wordplay here. Uh, He says in verse 8, he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast for my time is not yet fully come. So in verse 6, he says, my time hasn't come And in verse eight, he says, my time has not fully come. Now, a lot of people, when they look at this, they think, okay, he's talking about when he goes to the cross. And I would submit to you, that's not what he's talking about here. In verse 30 of, uh, and and you don't need to go there, but in verse 30, he says, it says that when the the officers seize him and and lay hold of him, that they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. That's a different word. The word here, he's not deceiving anybody. The, the word for, in verse 30 is hora, the Greek word. The Greek word here, for my time has not come, is kairos. Now, when he says, my hour has not yet come, hora, he's talking about the destined hour of God. He's talking about the time when he would go and take the cup of suffering. When he uses this word, kairos, kairos, that word is, is actually more ac- accurately rendered opportunity. He's saying, you guys, it's always opportune for you to go, talking to his brothers. But the opportunity for me to go is not fully come yet. In other words, he was planning when he would go to the feast, but it wasn't time when they went. Interesting. And we'll see in the dialogue here, that, in the, in the narrative here, why, um, in, in a couple of minutes, I want to just pause here and look at the difference between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. There's a difference. There's a big difference. So often we get in, and I don't know how many times I have, and just being honest with you, that I have leaned to my own understanding and that I have committed that sin of omission in other words, I failed to check with that. Think about Joshua with the Gibeonites. Remember they came and they had the old sandals and the old wineskins and all the stuff, and they tricked him. And it says that Joshua failed to inquire of the Lord about these guys, and he ended up making a pact with them, and then he had to honor the pact. And so it's easy for us to think, well, I've got the solution to that. And it's not always God's solution. It's not always... and. Jesus' brothers are proof here. They're saying, Jesus, go on down there. You know, you're doing all this stuff and you want to be seen doing it. So go down there and be seen. It makes sense to them. They're not trying to trick him. Yeah, they're kind of jacking him up a little bit because they're brothers. But It makes sense to them, but it didn't make sense to God. It didn't make sense to Jesus. He knew what he was going to do. So often in our lives, we look at the way things are unfolding, the way that things are going, things that are happening, circumstances that line up, and, and we can look at them and go, I am completely undone. I am completely overwhelmed by what's going on. But there's so much peace that's available in the middle of those circumstances to simply go to the point of saying, you know what? God's timing is not my timing. His ways are not my ways. He says, they're beyond your finding out. So what does that mean? What that means is that I come to that place of trust. Just trust. Lord, this doesn't look good. Lord, I don't know what I'm gonna do in this thing. I don't, I I look at my options and they don't look good. Or I don't have any options. I I look at, you know, how these circumstances that I've gone through or going through, uh, that there's nothing good that can come out of them. I don't know how this, and and, you know, I don't know how many times I've gotten to the other end of a trial, guys, and went, oh, that's what you were doing. Oh, I see it now. Oh, Lord, I'm so glad you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Thank you. Thank you. And there are times, guys, where, frankly, we go through things and we won't see what God was doing until we get there. But he calls upon us to trust. And that sometimes is easy to say and hard to apply, huh? I know in my life, when my life starts getting pressed in, and he wants to teach me those lessons. It's, man, it's not comfortable. Uh, but, but James, his brother, actually wrote, count it all joy. And he meant it. I've shared before, as a young Christian, I would read James chapter one and go, what on earth is this guy talking about? Count it all joy when you go through these fiery ordeals? He says, yeah, count it all joy. Because those will produce something in you, in your life that you cannot produce on your own. They'll produce this endurance. They'll produce this patience. They'll produce character, godly character. And you're not going to seek that on your own. But God knows what he's doing. He knows the timing he's going to use. And he will do it. So why did Jesus go to this feast? He says, I'm not going to go to his brothers, but then he goes anyway. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we read three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's just after Passover. It's part of Passover. Uh, At the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, All of the Jewish men were required to go to three feasts. What they added later was that if you lived within 20 miles, there was a penalty if you didn't. It was against the law to not go to the feast. Uh, And I could get into speculation about why the religious leaders set that up, because they were hucksters and they were getting as many people into the city as they could because they were ripping them off, but... Anyway, verse 11, so then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? The reason why they were seeking him is because his brothers were already there, and he usually traveled with his family. He traveled with a, a, a bunch of guys down to the feast, and so they're looking, they see his brothers, they don't see him. Well, they're, well, hey, what's going on? We don't see Jesus. Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him, and some said, he's good, and others said, no, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. So these people, uh, we looked at, with his brothers, they had a sort of a sarcastic contempt for Jesus, and these people have a contempt that's born of ignorance. Now, we have our opinions, we have our ideas, we have our our thoughts about this guy. Yeah, some of them say he's good, some say, no, no, he's a deceiver, Yeah, you know. and, And isn't that just like the world? You talk to any intelligent unbeliever, and they're absolutely willing to line up the reasons that they're not willing to believe to line up the reasons that they're not willing to embrace this jesus guy and that's what the people are doing here remember he polarized the people when he told them about eating his body and drinking his blood six months ago and people were polarized ever since remember we talked about that he wants us to wrestle i'm convinced of it folks He wants us to wrestle over who he is and what he's about. Because if we don't, we're going to end up with this puny idea of what Jesus is all about, what he offers humanity. Turn on television, on religious programming, any particular day, and you will see this short view of who Jesus is. Yeah, man. Just believe in him and he'll give you health. He'll give you prosperity. He'll give you all the stuff. And man, you can have this wonderful. You know, and I I know that Bill Bright was, you know, he was well-intentioned when he came up with the four spiritual laws, the guy that founded Campus Crusade for Christ. is another name now. And and I understand that he was well-intentioned. But one of those spiritual laws was God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Get to the end of the lives of these 11 not counting Judas, but then 12, if you count the Apostle Paul, because I believe he was God's choice for the replacement of Judas, you get to the end of these guys' lives. Every single one of them, except for John, died a violent death, specifically for his testimony of Christ. I don't think that they would have said, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, he does have a wonderful plan for your life, and I understand the spirit in which that particular saying was developed, Guys, I remember my brother, when he gave his life to Christ, I mean have shared it before, it, within 30 days, his entire life was leveled. He, his home got repossessed. He lost his vehicle. He lost his job. He had nothing. Zero. 30 days out. And he had lived really well for decades before that. He gives his life to Christ and his life just goes to zero. Again, he couldn't understand the circumstances, and he was just—I mean, the guy wept himself to sleep every night. I would talk to him on the phone and say, "Jimmy, I just want to encourage you." And he's going, oh, "I mean, I don't know what is going on. You know, just, I thought that I was getting all this good stuff." And I said, "He's working. You got to understand. He sees down the road. You don't see what he's doing." And what God was doing in that was bringing his life to nothing in Southern California. And at the same time, one of the guys that worked for me told me he was moving, and I had a vacancy in my business. And I'm going. Oh no, Lord! I'm not hiring my brother. Not a chance. Ugh. He's my biggest, my oldest brother, and he's kind of a pain. And you know, he's hi, Jim. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and and I'm I'm just kind of going through this whole mental dialogue in my prayer life with the Lord, and the Lord saying, "I want you to hire him." And no, Lord. He didn't even have you know the guy organizes. He alphabetizes his spice rack. I'm not that way. And. I mean, you know, he's, he's kind of picky. And, and I mean, you know, I just kind of went through this whole deal. And, and, and the Lord just, he was like quiet, except for, I want you to hire him. Finally, I was like, okay, I'll hire him. That was one of the most wonderful moves that God ever blessed me with in my business life and in my personal life. He would get confused at times because I was also one of his pastors and I was his boss and I was his youngest brother. So I'd be talking to him, he'd just, wait, stop, John, stop. And I'd say, yeah. And he'd say, which hat are you wearing right now? I don't know if you're talking to me as a pastor or as my boss or as my kid brother. Oh, okay. And then we would kind of square that away. But my point is, is that God was working. He took this guy's life apart so that he could cause him to have a need to relocate. And he's been... Now he's in full-time ministry. He's been in the particular church where I was at. He's been there for 25 years. He's just a blessing to the people. And and I just see that God has given him this rich, full life that he never would have had had he kept his house, kept his car, kept his job. He would have stayed where he was. But God knows what he's doing. The point in all that, folks, is we don't see down the road. So if you're facing tough, tough circumstances this morning, understand God has this. He truly has this. I don't know I can't tell you. I've told people many times as a pastor, I can't, I don't have the ability to impact your circumstances, but I can show you from God's word how to live really well within them. And I think that's the higher calling, is to live well within the circumstances within which we find ourselves. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter four. It's a wonderful passage. You can't be indifferent with Jesus. I mean, these guys were sort of treating him with indifference, and um, yeah. So we see he goes from from having a sarcastic contempt with his brothers. Now there's an ignorant contempt, a contempt that's born of ignorance. And Jesus is dividing the people. He's actually dividing the people still. Remember, he did that six months ago. The people were strongly divided, but that's part of his plan too. In Matthew chapter ten, this is one of those hard. Hitting passages. Uh, I'm just going to read it. I'm going to let it sit because it's God's word. And I even thought about, as I was looking at this and I'm developing this morning's message, I thought about cutting out some of the hard stuff. And I went, why would I do that? This is what you have to say to us. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's not hard to believe. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross up and follow after me is not worthy of me. In verse 39 of chapter 10 in Matthew, he says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, gang, this upside down kingdom that we live in, uh, often the man's wisdom in, in trying to apply that in our circumstances, read the book of Job sometimes you see man's wisdom with his, his counselors, his buddies that were trying to help him out. It sounds good on the surface, but usually, and I've learned to be careful because God's doing something completely different, and I found there's great wisdom. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 is one of my life verses. He says, for you have need of patience or endurance, depending on which translation you're reading, that after having done the will of God to wait for what's been promised over and over and over again. I don't understand it. Yeah, and I've, I've had people in my own family come against me for my testimony of Christ years ago. Now they're Christians. But, you know, I know what it's like. I know what it's like for people to stand against me. And, and, and perhaps you do too. And if you don't, maybe you need to speak up a little more. Because he does call us to be a light. When it comes to natural versus spiritual relationships, the gospel is a divider of people. Uh, Jesus, yeah, he's the Prince of Peace. And the gospel is a message of peace. But when we confess Christ, understand, you will make enemies. You will have people opposed to you. Because the truth of the gospel gets under people's skin. I mean... People want to bury it. I heard a guy say one time, he said, you know, we're called to just plant seeds. And you want to know what happens when you try to bury a seed. It gets it gets uncomfortable. I mean, that baby will spring forth out of asphalt. Verse 13, however, no one spoke openly for him for fear of the Jews. Now, this is significant because the people were afraid to speak about Jesus if they if they cut off, if the Jewish leaders, and they had the power, they had the authority to cut somebody off, uh, if they were cut off, they lost everything. They lost their job. Their family would turn their back on them. uh, They lost their inheritance. They lost their rights to even go to Jerusalem to worship. I mean, they lost everything. They were completely ostracized from their society. And so the people had good reason to fear. And, And I think about people who in, in our day, live in countries where they fear the authorities. Stacy and I watched a, a premiere or preview of uh, a movie uh, put out by Voice of the Martyrs called, um, um, oh, what was the name of it? Yeah, Tortured for Christ. And it was about the guy that founded Voice of the Martyrs. It was a, a testimony of his life and how he spent 14 years in a communist prison. I mean, being beaten within an inch of his life repeatedly over and over and over again for his testimony of Christ, people will be opposed. And I pray that our country doesn't come to that. It's becoming more of a hostile environment for Christ- Christians all the time. In verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled at him, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Now, having never studied with them is what's implied here, and, and this is an arrogant contempt that these guys. So we're seeing that these people are contemptuous towards Jesus for different reasons, um, and they're being arrogant. They're, well, and, and it's true that in Jesus' day there were thirty or more rabbinical schools in Jerusalem alone. I mean, they had lots of opportunities for higher education. And they're going, well, th- he didn't go to our school, so maybe. So I don't understand how he knows so much. How does this guy speak? When Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 were hauled before the Sanhedrin, remember they, they got out there and they were preaching the gospel, and huge numbers of people were coming. I mean, first there's 3,000, then there's 5,000. I mean, uh, the Holy Spirit had fallen, and I mean the church was on fire. And so the Sanhedrin hauls uh, Peter and John before them and and it says now in in Acts 4.13, it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. So they marveled at these guys as well. And and then it says, and then they realized that they'd been with Jesus. It's like, oh, okay, now we understand. Hey, they've been with that Jesus guy. How do they know all this? Oh, that's right, yeah, they've been with Jesus. And it's true, it's not what you know, but who you know. Um, I think about some of the the theologians, the the great men of God that I study, a lot of these guys, and and men that I have a huge respect for. Spurgeon, never had a degree. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, another one. Uh, Harry Ironside, Martin Lloyd-Jones, many of these guys. They didn't have a formal education. But they were so greatly used of God because of who they knew, not what they knew. That if you're simply committed, you don't have to worry about it. This is not rocket science, guys. This is meat and potatoes stuff. Christianity is not... It's, yeah, and I love reading some of the, you know, the detailed theological stuff. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a place for that. But truly, when we come and we gather, uh, I call this smorgasbord teaching. If you don't like what's out there, then take what fits and then leave the rest for somebody else. Because it's, it's about having God speak to us. It's about his word applying to our lives. It's about his spirit, the spirit of God, taking the word of God and driving it into the hearts of the people of God. Does it appeal to our intellect? Yeah, at times. Is that the primary reason? Absolutely not, absolutely not. Because God wants a people that are set apart for him that are, that are committed to his purposes being worked out in their lives. And he uses this to accomplish that. I remember um, I would go on. One of the things that, with me, I, I've had some education. I went to, to Bible school and, and all. I didn't get a degree. It was, it was not a, uh, a school that was geared towards degrees. At that time, it was geared towards ministry and, and uh, all of that. But um, I used to get teaching tapes and I was in the billboard. I I would hand paint billboards all over the state of California. About 70% of the state was my territory. And I would leave for a week, 10 days. And I would stock my truck with probably 40 hours of teaching. And as I went down the highway, it might be four hours to my next job. I would just flip another tape in in the deal and listen. And you know, over a year's time, over five years' time, how many hours of study the Lord privileged me to have? I mean, I went through mountains of of teachings during that time. And God was using that in my life uh, to draw me deeper, to draw me to a place where I had a, a greater understanding, to draw me to a place where he was putting the Word of God in At that time, I wasn't even, well, part of it I was teaching, but the early part I wasn't. But to put it in so that he in his timing, could have it come out. And I praise God for that. I mean, I had no idea that I was getting the equivalent of a large education. Sitting in my truck, driving from one sign on the highway to the next. How silly is that? But that's how God works. That's how he instructs us. That's how he draws us to these places of understanding. That, and that was part of his design. And I praise God for that. that uh, I'd be out there just cruising down the highway. And uh, I remember at one point, I got to the point where I had boxes of teaching tapes. And then the Lord prospered my business. I ended up with six crews. And I had lots of tapes to put in every truck, and I used that as a as a as an evangelism tool for my guys. And pretty soon, my employees, one by one, every one of them came to Christ, except for one. Um, And and you know, pretty soon I'm baptizing these guys. And I mean, and it was all part of God's design. And I had one guy tell me, he said, "You know, John, I wanted to go to Bible school for a long time, and the Lord showed me something." I said, "What's that, Lynn?" He said, "The Lord showed me the Bible school is in your feet." And I said, that's great. He said, yeah, he just wants me to just show up and he'll do the work. Jesus answered them, verse 16, and says, my doctrine's not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. That is one of the best scriptures in the entire Bible, in my opinion. If anyone wills to do his will, he'll know about the doctrine. He doesn't say if anyone commits to go to college and again you might and I'm not saying that that school is bad but he's not tying understanding and maturity as a Christian with how much you know. How do you find out which he is? They're saying he's either a deceiver or he's the Messiah and essentially he's saying don't conclude that based on others but upon me he ties revelation of who he is, what he's about, to obedience. What's the obedience? He says, if anybody wills to do his will, what's his will? That you may believe. Then you'll know concerning the doctrine. Interesting. Obedience is the door through which revelation enters. He's simply calling for a people to be obedient to him. The thing about Abraham, you know, you look at Abraham's life, it says that he was in Bethel, uh, house of God. He was hearing from the Lord when he was in Bethel, then he decided to go to Egypt, and things didn't go so well for him in Egypt. He actually kind of backslid, if you want to use that term, and ended up lying, you know, about his wife, you know, that's my sister, and doing all this stuff. You know, God didn't, Abraham didn't hear God's voice again until he returned to Bethel, until he was obedient to the Lord. And the Lord began to speak with him once more. That's what he does with us. Spiritual light, spiritual growth, is not based on intellect. It's based on obedience. Spiritual darkness, think about it. The opposite is based on rebellion. People are rebellious towards God, don't think that you're gonna go any further with him until you get that straight. It's a very interesting dynamic that he lays out here. Billy Sunday, great evangelist and preacher in the 19th century said this. He said, the reason that a sinner can't find his savior is the same reason that a criminal can't find a policeman. All right, it'll take a minute. You'll get it. The same reason that a criminal can't find a policeman. In other words, you're not going to find him if you don't look. You're not. He's available. And he was available to these people, but they were coming up with their own ideas. They were in rebellion towards him and they were coming up with their own ideas not to believe. Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. So Jesus here is declaring that he's not self-seeking. Now, these guys, when they got up, the, the religious leaders, by contrast, they would get up and they would want to draw a crowd and they would want to kind of bring the glory onto themselves. And he stood against that. He's saying, no, I'm here to glorify my father. I'm not here to, I'm not self-seeking. He wasn't there because his brothers said go. I mean, his brothers would tell him to go and, and to be self-seeking. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he waits till, he, till the middle of the feast, he goes up, and then he begins to teach in the temple, which I think is remarkable. And he says, no, I, I'm not here to promote myself. I'm here to promote my father's will. He says, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, think about it. In the law, it says, thou shalt not commit murder. And, they're, and, and they've already, he knows they've got a plan to kill him. He's saying, you guys, you, you're all about Moses, huh? No, you're not. You don't even keep the law. You're seeking to kill me. And they answer him and they say, you have a demon. Yeah, that's... Have you ever caught somebody in a lie and they throw up this big wall? Oh, yeah, well, well, well I saw what you did, you know, or whatever. That's what the people are doing here. They all Who's trying to kill you? you? Have Oh, you have a demon, Jesus. We're not listening to that. And the people said, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. He's referring again back to chapter five when he healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda. That was the last exposure they had of him to him when he was in the southern part of the country was when he, you remember, he marched in, heals this guy. He'd been there 38 years all that. Um, and Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the Father, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? All right, so what happened was God ordained the Sabbath, right? Is you know, That day is holy to the Lord. Don't do any work in the law. But he also ordained circumcision. Well, because circumcision wasn't from Moses, it was from the fathers. In other words, it predated the law. They said, okay, well, if a woman has a son on the Sabbath, eight days later, you're supposed to have him circumcised. That would bring it right around to the next Sabbath. So what he's saying is, all right, you make this provision in the law to do this work of circumcising a child on the eighth day, and if it falls on the Sabbath, you're going to circumcise him on the Sabbath, but you're all over me because I healed a guy on the Sabbath? It doesn't make any sense, and he's basically using the word of God to support what he's doing. Besides that, he says the Sabbath was made for man. Remember he doesn't exist- yeah, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. He made the Sabbath, he's not subject to the Sabbath. He says, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. in other words, the Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing to the people, not a burden, and these guys had turned it into a total burden it was It was what he said in Matthew when he says, "You tie up heavy loads for men you." you, you You foolish men, you you have just taken the things of God and so reduced them. And that's what religion does. Verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not him who they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers not know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, nobody will know where he's from. This is a misguided application from Isaiah 53, 8 where they had taken that and misinterpreted it to say, nobody will know where Messiah comes from. He's just going to kind of appear. And they knew that he'd come from Judah. Uh, totally ignoring Micah 5.2, where it's prophesied that Jesus would come from Bethlehem. So Jesus cried out in verse 28, as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from, that I have not come from myself, but at him who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So now, here's Jesus crying out in the temple, purposely attracting as much attention as he can, because he is coming back to this base truth about him, who he is, and where he's from. He's saying, I came from heaven, and I came from the Father. He's been saying that all along. You folks don't want to believe that. That's fine. It's not going to change the truth. And these guys, the guys that had hatched, the the leaders, I mean, this would have set their teeth on edge. I can see them just growling. I mean, they did not like this guy to begin with. He was drawing huge crowds away from them. And now he's crying out these profound things. And again, I believe they're under conviction. I believe they knew that he was Messiah, but that didn't fit their program. They, were, they had a, a, just a, a horrible view. It was an earthly view of what their deal was. They had a very comfortable life. They had a very cush life. And he was threatening every bit of it. Therefore, they sought to take him and no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, there's that word hora as opposed to kairos. His hour, his appointed time hadn't come. So he divides the crowd again. Here had been 400 years since the Old Testament prophets and here's this guy standing up at the temple loudly proclaiming who he was and where he was from and who he was from. Verse 32, and the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him and they, the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So now they send their thugs. They actually sent a military contingent to go and to, and to lay hold of this guy. And Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So they send these officers out, they send them after Jesus, and Jesus squares right up to these guys. He knows they're not going to touch him. His hour hadn't come. I picture him looking at these guys and saying, I'll be with you a little while longer, and I go to him who sent me. And they're probably scratching their heads. You're seeking me. You're not going to find me where I am. You can't come. In verse 45, he says, I'm going to heaven and you're not. That day is coming. At that point, it'll be too late. And the Jews in verse 35 said among themselves, where does he intend to go and uh, that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So where's he talking about going? They, they're not getting it at all at this point. Is he going to go to the Gentiles? Is that where he's going? Where we can't go? I, what, they're totally confused. What is this thing that he said, you'll seek me and not find me. And where I am, you can't Come. The thing I think is remarkable about this is Jesus is standing untouchable in the midst of the crowd with the officers, uh, the guys that want to kill him. He's completely secure in the Father's will. He's indestructible in those circumstances. So are you. So am I. Uh, Again, we we so often face circumstances that we don't get. God doesn't tell us the end from the beginning. We look at the end from the beginning in so many of these accounts in the Bible because if we've spent much time in God's word, we know how it comes out. And yet in our lives, we don't know how it comes out. Received a call from uh, one of my brothers, uh, very close, just this, this, this past week. And he, he loves the Lord. Uh, He's been diagnosed with uh, a, a disease that is very, very serious. He was broken. And all I could do is just say, you know what? God has this. Yeah, I'll be praying for you. And, and, and I am praying for him. I, I, I love my brother, and I've had three siblings um, pass away in the last couple of years. And it's uh, sort of one of those tough areas of life when you get older and you start seeing people that you care about. And yet, I'm not going to consign him to death at this point. What I am going to do is I'm going to say, Lord, he's yours. I want you to do what you're going to do. And, I, you know, I understand you're sovereign. Life hits us, guys. It hits us. I want to close with um, seven verdicts about Jesus from chapter seven. Some of them, most of these we've already looked at. Some of them go further in chapter seven, but we're going to go somewhere. We're going to take a different track next week. So I want to cover them now. The first is he was a good man. Uh, Verse 12, uh, the first part, and some said he's good. And that verdict is true, but it's not the whole truth. Napoleon uh, made a famous remark. He said, I know men and Jesus Christ is more than a man. Jesus was indeed truly human, but in him was the mind of God. When he speaks, it's not just a man speaking to us. If that were so, we might argue about his commands. When he speaks, it is God speaking to us. And Christianity means not arguing about his commands, but accepting them. The second here is that he was a prophet. In verse 40, we haven't got there, we'll get there next week. Uh, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is a prophet. That was when he talked about, uh, drink the water that I give you and from your innermost being will gush forth rivers of living water, Uh, identifying himself as living water in the midst of the feast. Well, I can't wait to get it in that next week, it's a great passage. Uh, This too is true. Prophets foretell the will of God and that they've lived so close to God that they know his mind, they know his purposes. That is true of Jesus. But here's the difference. When prophets say, thus says the Lord, their authority is borrowed and delegated. When Jesus says, I say unto you, he has the right to speak, not with delegated authority, but by his own authority. The third from verse twenty is that he was a deluded man, madman, and 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 folks equate these to things that people say about Jesus today because there are people that have many many opinions about him. I've learned over the years that when people start giving opinions about Jesus, unless they're founded in God's word, that they're generally born of an unwillingness to know and to do his will. Like he says here, they're born of an unwillingness to come to believe, an unwillingness to simply trust him as savior and Lord. Verse 20, the people answered and said, "'You have a demon, who's seeking to kill you?' It is true that either Jesus is the only completely sane person in the world, or he was mad. He chose a cross when he might've had power. He was the suffering servant when he might've been the conquering king. He washed the feet of his disciples when he might have had people kneeling down at his feet. He came to serve when he could have subjected the world to servitude. It is not common sense that the words of Jesus give us, but an uncommon sense. He turned the world standards upside down because into a mad world he brought the supreme sanity of God. I like that. The fourth here is that he was a seducer from the second half of of verse 12, where it says, Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. They're accusing him of of seducing the crowds. And the Jewish authorities saw in him one who was leading people away from their true religion. They really believed that theirs was a true religion of God. He was accused of every crime against religion in their day, of, of being a Sabbath breaker. They accused him of being a drunkard, of being a glutton, They looked at him as having the most disreputable friends. That he destroyed their orthodox religion. It is quite clear that if we prefer our idea of religion to his, he will certainly appear as a seducer. The fifth here is that he was a man of courage. Verse 26, but look, he speaks boldly and and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? They're assuming because he speaks with such boldness that the rulers did know. And they did. They just were rejecting. No one could ever doubt his sheer courage. He had the moral courage to defy convention and be different. He had the physical courage that could bear the most terrible pain. He had the courage to go on, to, to go on when his family abandoned him and his friends forsook him. And one of his own circle betrayed him. Here we see him courageously entering Jerusalem when to enter it was to enter the lion's den. He was utterly committed to the Father's will and thus he never feared the face of any man. Courageous? Yeah. The sixth thing here is he had the most dynamic personality. The officers in verse 46, we'll get to it next week, they say nobody ever talked to like this guy. I mean, they go back to the the chief priests and and all that, the, the leaders And they say, well, where is he? Didn't you get him? And they say, wow, he really spoke really good stuff. Nobody ever talked like him. And um, yeah, we know that he was exercising his will because it wasn't his hour. But the verdict of the officers who were sent to arrest him and came back empty-handed was that no one had ever spoken like this. When we think of how this Galilean carpenter faced the highest in the land and dominated them until it was they who were on trial and not he... We are bound to admit that he was at least least one of the supreme personalities in history. The picture of a gentle, anemic Jesus will not do. From him flowed a power that sent those dispatched to arrest him back in empty-handed bewilderment. I would love to see that scene. Uh, We didn't bring him. No, he's got some really good things to say. Seventh and last is that he was the Christ. from verse 31 and many of the people believed in him and said when the christ comes will he do more signs than these which this man has done and he truly was the christ the anointed one of god nothing less will do it's a plain fact that jesus doesn't fit into any of the available human categories only the category of the divine will do so as we look at this gang chapter seven i mean it's just packed we see all of these different attitudes, these different uh, verdicts, these different conclusions that people were drawing about Jesus. We know, as he says, that the highway is broad that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life and few are those who find it. And I would submit to you, it was only those that had a right idea, that had come to a right conclusion of who he was, who he is. And it behooves us to examine ourselves, to say, Lord, do I have a right concept of who you are? It doesn't have to be a deep, as we've looked at this morning, it doesn't have to be a deep theological set of, you know, I, I don't have to have a systematic theology in order to believe, but am I trusting you in my life that you are the Lord, that you are the Christ that you are the one who demonstrated over and over and over again, and demonstrates in my life that you have the power, the authority in my life to not just forgive my sins, but to give me an abundant life, even when things are falling apart around me. Yeah, that's the Lord that we serve. That's the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus that's alive, that by His Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart and mine. We do well to remember these things. We go out there in the world, I'll tell you what, I don't know what your week has in store, I don't know what mine does, but I, knew we go out, I do know that we go out there and we get beat up. We get those phone calls, we get those things that happen, we have those circumstances, we have kids that we're concerned about, we have parents that are sick, we have things that are going on, we don't know how the finances are going to come together. I mean, you could just go down the list. And we do well to remember and to stay centered in the fact that Jesus loves us. And yeah, he has a wonderful plan for our lives. It's not going to look anything like what you think it'll look like. I'll guarantee that. And that might be hard things. But it's for our good that he's working. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to draw us to these places of, of simply blowing the dust off of those things that we already perhaps know. And we ask, Father, that you would uh, just be merciful to us. Pour out your grace on our lives. Give us understanding in those appropriate times, Father, the things that you're doing. We pray for those in our families, those of our loved ones, those in our circle that don't know you. Grant us boldness. We pray that we could boldly stand up for the gospel. Yes, that our life would shine, Lord and that our words would count. We pray that you would soften hearts, that you would do the work, Father, in us and through us as we live in and we reach out to a a lost and messed up and dying world. We commit ourselves afresh to you and ask your will be done in us. Thank you, Lord, for this day. We pray your blessing on the rest of it. In Jesus' name, amen.